Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Okay, so we are coming to the end of our time in Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at the last part of the letter. And so I want to read to you verses 7 through the end of the letter, 7 through 25. She's very excited to hear God's word. Amen to that. Okay, hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you, if he comes soon, greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you as we do every week. We thank you for this, your word. And we pray now that in this time in our service, we would be a people who sit under it and are changed by it. May you do your work in our hearts and our minds as we consider your word, and may that be transformative to who we are, informing us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. In 
whose name we pray. Amen. So last week, I don't know if you remember, but last week I took you back to 1977, Jackson Brown's Running on Empty, as a way of thinking about our task here of running the race. And so what I thought I'd do this morning is I would help you out a little bit by doing something a bit more modern. And so we're going to go from 1977 all the way to 1980. I know it's breakneck speed, but you can keep up. Bob Seger wrote an album and a song of the same title entitled Running Against the Wind. When, you might be guessing, 1980, of course, is the answer. And here's the interesting thing about this. It's said that Bob Seger actually ran cross-country and track in high school. And so he borrowed this phrase, this idea of running against the wind from his running days, because that's literally what runners do. They often run against the wind. Now, not surprisingly, when Seger writes the song, he means it to be a metaphor for life, a, a metaphor for getting older, more specifically. In fact, that's what the opening line of the song says. It seems like yesterday, but it was long ago. And just a bit later, we read, against the wind, we were running against the wind. We were young and strong, and we were running against the wind. And with a bit of envy for those good old days, he then writes, well, those drifter days are past me now. I've got so much more to think about. Deadlines and commitments, what to leave in and what to leave out. And as the song comes to a close with the outro chorus continually repeating, against the wind, I'm still running against the wind. I'm older now, but still running against the wind. And of course, this is true of running, and it's true of life. As we get older, life can and often does get harder. Things change. Different challenges come about. Different distractions come about. And oftentimes, the things that were once energizing to us, well, somehow they don't seem to be so energizing to us anymore. Maybe you could relate to that. I've often heard it said, facetiously that is, that new Christians get a little bit of this idea, that, that new Christians <laughs> facetiously should be locked up for six months. A strange thing to say, but of, of course, it's meant facetiously. It's meant to demonstrate something, and maybe you're familiar with it. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek statement. It's intended to highlight that new believers, new Christians, can exude an enthusiasm that can be more than a little overwhelming to both believers and unbelievers. And that's a good thing, right? The newness of salvation and the excitement and joyfulness of that is, is something that's relatable. How, but how many of us tend to gravitate towards the less enthusiastic mode that's more comfortable and more familiar after a season? Yeah? Because as we get older, and older in our faith in particular, we find ourselves running, as it were, against the wind. Wind in the form of deadlines, as Seeger wrote about, and obligations. Wind in the form of relational demands. Wind in the form of work demands. And even wind in the form of church demands. 
And sometimes that wind is plain, right? It's howling and loud, blowing hard against us, but other times it's a bit more subtle. Now, for the last several weeks, we have been thinking about the last half of Hebrews uh, through this lens of running a race, running with endurance and with discipline and with vision. And we're, we're getting that idea. But most of us could probably relate to, as new believers, what we would do in terms of the metaphor of race is we would be leaping off the starting line with no consideration to conserving our energy. Just full speed ahead, right? And that's something that we could do two weeks ago when we began to think about that. We could keep pace with that. And last week, what I did was I charged you to keep on running. Most of you could kind of muster up the proverbial second wind for that. But what I'm going to tell you today is that you still have more running to do. And yes, we're older now. Still running against the obstacles of wind, spiritual or otherwise. I meant to put this up for you. That's a picture of the album, by the way. Wait. wait. Does everybody know what an album is? <laughs> Just occurs to me that I might have to clarify that. Yeah, so that's what it is. Running against the wind is hard. And if we're honest, it only gets harder the longer we do it. And the fact is that we tend to do this for our whole lives. We're charged to do it, really. Here's an interesting way to think about that wind. Paul describes it for us in Ephesians 3 using three categories. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's a way to think about the, the, this, this, this metaphor of wind running up against us, the obstacles that we face. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And as the writer of Hebrews finishes his words of encouragement to, to us, really, really words of exhortation, a pleading to endure... He does so not by telling us to run to Jesus so as to avoid danger. He doesn't want us to equate Jesus with safety or with comfort. He ought not to be equated with something that's fun or easy. Quite the opposite, in fact. C.S. Lewis, in his Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, demonstrates this in that story Young Lucy, who is a character in the story, is about to face Aslan, Aslan the lion, a metaphor for Jesus, of course, a rather biblical one, since Jesus is the lion of Judah. And as she prepares, she expresses some understandable hesitation. She's concerned, and she asks her friends, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, for some clarification. She wants a little comfort. He asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Well, that gets Lucy to be cautious and concerned. Then he isn't safe, she asks. And here's where Mr. Beaver decides to interject because he's had enough. Safe, he says. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver's telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. 
That's just good stuff. You should be more excited about that. <laughs> That's something I really want you to resonate with. Jesus is good, but not safe. In fact, he's good for us because he's not safe. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to say that there's nothing safe about Jesus in one very real sense. The only safe place is Jesus because he's the way that we avoid the dangers of, it, of, of, of eternal dangers of of hell and damnation, but as we run the race here in this life, the endurance and the discipline of the Lord rarely, if ever, includes such things as comfort and safety. And if we want to be fruitful for the kingdom, then we too need to run the race, run against the many spiritual obstacles that face us. And those obstacles are often dangerous, not safe, often uncomfortable, rarely fun, joyful, Joyful, absolutely. They're not fun. Now, I don't mean to say that Christians can't have fun. By no means. Of course we can. In fact, according to our shorter catechism that we just looked at, our very purpose rests in enjoying God forever. But the race that is the mission of our lives, lived out for the kingdom, does not rest on the foundation of comfort and safety, but rather on the foundation of Jesus and his sacrifice for us to which we are to respond with a willingness to sacrificially offer ourselves. Two, as Jesus charged us to do in our call to worship this morning, take up his cross and follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? So what does this look like as we come to the end of Hebrews? Let's take a look here. And maybe you'll remember uh, this little layout here, this outline. We looked last week at loving well in the first six verses, and now it's remembering and obeying your leaders, and then some a benediction and some final words. So we'll jump in with this. Oh, I... Oops. There it is. Sorry. Before we jump in, though, uh, um, into this idea of running toward Jesus without any expectation of comfort or safety, I want to start by keeping in mind, having us keep in mind, that we run the race well by remembering and obeying our leaders. That's the, the theme that we're thinking about here. That's exactly what we're told in these verses. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, i got to tell you, that's, uh, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure on me and on your leaders. We must be a model for you. But here's one of the things that I want you to keep in mind as we begin this journey as the church of the Gunks, a community church of the EPC. I want you to keep in mind that we will remain in the EPC. We'll remain members of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church denomination. And that means that even in our little church, there will be more leaders for you to imitate than just me. Everybody say, amen. There will be what we call a plurality of leaders. There will be other immediate leaders, members of our mission board, which is sort of the first step in that, in that transition. And here at our church, that includes myself and Derek, who I was hoping to put on the spot, and Varys, but he's not here this morning, so we'll be praying for him. We also have a session member from Goodwill, Bill Quackenbush. He also is a leader for us. 
We have two other uh, board members from the larger presbytery. One is yet to be named from the, ch uh, the church development uh, committee. And the other is a man by the name of T.M. Moore. And uh, T.M. Moore is the founder and principal of the Fellowship of Owl that I belong to. He's a fellow teaching elder in the EPC. He's a mentor of mine, although recently he says to me, we're not mentors, we're peers. And I beg to differ because he's a gifted uh, man and been very helpful and informative for me. He's a prolific writer, and the man loves Jesus. Every one of his resources on his website is free. I encourage you to, to go there. They can be found on the, the Fellowship of Valve website. And as a gift for us, he sent us 30 copies of his little work entitled Joy to Your World. A little bit of a play on the, on the Christmas hymn. It's appropriate for our season of Advent. Um, it's a short little book. Uh, that I think well describes what it means to be a joyful Christian and to be joyful on mission. And it demonstrates what, what it is to do outreach and to think about what it means to, to think about the area you're in as your personal mission field for the gospel. There's a, a bunch of copies over there. I encourage you to grab one of these, uh, take that home and read that as part of your devotional time um, uh, this Advent season. So we have TM. He's a great leader to turn to as well. In fact, uh, in his little devotional, he writes these words. He says, The bringer of joy makes all who truly know him joy bringers to the world. A simple but profound truth. The bringer of joy makes all who truly know him joy bringers to the world. And then a little later he writes, Jesus, the bringer of joy, sends everyone who has entered his joy as a joy bringer to the mission field of the world, your world. And so the joy of your Christian faith is, is emanating outward, and that is what tasks you and puts you on mission to share the good news of the gospel. And so we're blessed to have TM as part of our team, too, an excellent leader to imitate and that's the, really the point, right? Namely, that you have other leaders to imitate. And as we progress forward, we'll begin to consider who will become our elders. And those elders will be trained and examined, not only for their knowledge and understanding of Scripture, of course, but also the office of elder, their Christian character. And that, of course, provides you with more leaders to imitate. And imitating leaders is, is a lot like picking a person in front of you in, in a race that you're running, right? You're running towards them or running after them, as it were, imitating their perseverance and imitating their endurance, even in trials, seeing their vision and chasing after their vision. And we can learn a lot by modeling all kinds of different versions of leadership. But one of the characteristics that the writer of Hebrews draws out for us here is that the leaders we're to follow are those who spoke to you the word of God. And I want to notice something here, that the focus is not only on the word of God, but specifically the word of God spoken to you. Again, lots of good Bible teachers out there. There's lots of bad ones too, of course, but there's lots of good ones. But even the good ones are not necessarily the ones who are speaking to you. They're just speaking and you're listening to them. If you're listening to them on the internet, for example, it's not a bad thing, but they're not speaking to you. Remember the charge here. Remember your leaders. And here's what I want you to see. There's something very deeply communal that's bound up in that language. 
We're not called to drift from one leader to another. And don't make any mistake, I'm not saying that we don't make wise choices for ourselves and for our, our family. To sit under sound teaching and to, and to be led where we want to go, uh, that the Lord is leading us. There are times to do that. There's times when it's appropriate, even necessary. But the charge does emanate a certain communal element that I, that I want you to see. It flows naturally out of it, and I, and, and, and I want you to see it. You can't really miss it. It's really important because, here's why it's important, because what follows is a verse that's often taken right out of its context to convey the unchanging nature of God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I'm sure you've heard that if you're in the church for a while. And rightly so. It's a good verse for that because it does most certainly teach us about Jesus' immutability, his unchanging nature. But specifically, in its context, it is intended to draw us, all of us, to our corporate leader. It's intended to draw us to Jesus. In other words, remember your leaders as they remember Jesus. Imitate your leaders, as Paul says elsewhere, only as they imitate Jesus. Jesus, Jesus who is unchanging. And, and why is this particular trait, this unchanging trait, such important, so, so important for us here? Why is this the thing that the author focused on? Well, because there's an immediate concern that the people are being led away by what he calls diverse and strange teachings. These many varied and unfamiliar teachings. Teachings that are in some manner different from the original once-for-all handed-down-through-the-ages gospel. And teaching is a very, very important aspect of the very nature and essence of the church. In fact, Presbyterians officially refer to us pastors as teaching elders. And it's a title that sort of helps with the governance of the church. But it doesn't mean we're just making it up. Teaching is an integral part of the life of the believer. And it's very, very biblical. The Israelites were charged by God to teach their children his ways. The psalmist cries out to God, Lord, teach me your ways. The prophet Habakkuk asks of the wooden idols of the people, can this teach that's the benchmark. The Gospels are filled with times when Jesus did what? Taught. Taught his people. Taught his disciples. He tells us that among the works of the Spirit is that he will teach you the things and, and bring to remembrance the things that Jesus spoke to you. As an opposition to the church, the wind, if you will, the apostles ran into was the, the Sanhedrin who charged them not to teach in the name of Jesus Paul charges Timothy and commands him to teach these things. He does the same for Titus. And the charge against the Hebrews earlier in this book that the author of Hebrews gives in chapter 6 is that by this time in their faith, in their walk, they ought to be teachers. And instead, they need someone to teach them. Teaching matters in the church. And in keeping with that value, the EPC has developed their short list of essentials because well, there are some things that are, ne are negotiable within Christianity. Things like whether or not we baptize babies or exactly what happens when we come to the table of the Lord's Supper. There are many other things that are, in fact, non-negotiable or essentials. In fact, it's part of the EPC's local that, a logo that I accidentally showed you earlier, and this is what it is. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. I find this to be a very, very valuable tool for us to think through how we act and function as a church. 
We are non-negotiable on the essentials of the faith. and We are flexible on the non-essentials. And we are charitable no matter what to others. Now, I also have um, these. The EPC puts these out. So you want to know what the essentials are. They're right here in this little, in this little booklet, this little thing that we can get uh, sent to us. I printed out some copies. There's, there are some copies before I ran out of paper. So there's a few copies over there on the desk for you to have a two-sided document, the larger version of this. And I encourage you to take that. That sort of displays our essentials, and we, we want to recognize that, and I encourage you to look at that. It's a really helpful tool for you to think through. Take one and read that. That's an identifier for who we are as an EPC church. So, we are to remember that just as Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so too is his teaching. And we are told staying true to his word and his teaching is good for us. Good in that our hearts are to be strengthened by grace and not by foods. I don't know about you, but that's a strange dichotomy to come across. I mean, sometimes Paul will compare and contrast things like grace and law, other places, gospel and the law. And we want to be careful here because other places Paul is saying the law is not contrary to grace. He's saying the misuse of the law is contrary to grace, but the law isn't contrary to grace. It helps us. We want to make that distinction. But grace and food is a rather odd contrast I want to read to you from uh, just that verse, verse 9, from just like two translations because I think it's going to help you tease out what Paul is after. Here's how it's, it reads in the NIV. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. And in the New Living Translation, it says, so do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food which do not help those who follow them. So what I want us to see here is this. The author is contrasting the Jewish Christians, the Jews who were recently converted, their dangerous propensities to gravitate back towards what we call as typological things that find fulfillment in Jesus, the things that were meant to point us to Jesus in the temple and in the food laws. They're going back to that, and he's saying, no, that's done. The, the ceremony of food laws were never intended to be an end in and of themselves. Instead, they were intended to point us to Christ, Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going to get a little bit of unpacking of that in these verses here. And this is where we get to the part of our, of our text here that, that Jesus is not necessarily safe. Remember the conversation between young Lucy and the beavers. Safe, Mr. Beaver asks. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king. And so we read, we have an altar from whom those who serve the tent have no right to eat. There's that food idea again. But for the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. 
here's where this dichotomy is fleshed out a good bit more. And keep in mind, the author is not here uh, uh, citing specific ceremonial food practices associated with the, temp- the tabernacle. And by the way, that word tent really is a reference to the tabernacle. Instead, he's employing some wordplay. He's using the ceremonial food laws as a metaphor for spiritual nourishment. We're charged to go outside the camp and to bear the reproach that Jesus endured. Now let me ask you, does that sound safe? Does it sound comfortable? Because it surely is not. It's not easy. It's anything but that. I could ask it this way. When you read these verses, do you think safety? Or do you think comfort? How about reproach? Yeah, you think reproach. Because it says so. What is reproach? Let me give you a definition. Reproach is an expression of rebuke or disapproval. The act or action of reproaching or disapproving. It is a, a cause or occasion of blame or discredit or disgrace. And here's an obsolete version, and one that would be sort of older, which is what we have here. One who is subjected to censure, that is condemnation or to scorn. It's hard to imagine how you would demonstrate that. And I was thinking, how am I going to illustrate that? What does it mean to endure reproach for Jesus? And I came up with this illustration from one of my favorite all-time movies, The Shawshank Redemption. It's one of my faves. In that story, a man named Andy Dufresne is wrongly accused and wrongly imprisoned, falsely imprisoned for his, the murder of his wife. And then finally, after about 20 years, decides he's going to escape. And he plans the escape down to a tease. He's a very smart man. But part of the escape requires that he crawls through over 500 yards of the prison's sewage line. Now, it's a weird way to think about reproach, but imagine the sewage line as sort of a metaphor for reproach. Something you don't want, I'm sure. I can safely say that, right? And the only reason... The only reason that Andy Dufresne was willing to crawl through that sewage line was because of the freedom that awaited him on the other side. That's how we have to think about reproach. The reproach that we're being called to endure with Jesus is comparable to that. And here's why, because of verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You see, if Andy thought that the best he had was the injustice of prison, and you can think about Andy Dufresne, the character Andy Dufresne's situation, wrongly accused and wrongly imprisoned as kind of like Egypt in the Bible. If he thought, this is the best I have, then he would never have endured the reproach of the sewer line. He wouldn't have made his situation even worse than it already was. But in a sense, he was looking to a lasting city. In his case, he endured that reproach for the temporary freedom that awaited him on the other side. But for us, we're being called to endure the reproach that Jesus endured, not for some temporary reward, but for an eternal one and a reward that centers on Jesus. It is the joy of being with him forever with no sin to contend with, giving us this wonderful vision and, be, and beautiful vision of Jesus. 
I've said it to you before that that's the, the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven isn't that, we, that it's a cool space, but that Jesus is there and that we have communion with Jesus. Communion that is unmediated, nothing between it because of sin being removed from the equation. God has done the work to remove that. That's what it is to be in heaven, to be in the manifest presence of Jesus And as hard as it is to, to imagine, eternity consists in our far increased ability as creatures still, but creatures without any sin, to take in the never-ending, the inexhaustible majesty and glory of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Try to. All of eternity will be spent drinking in the wonders and joy and majesty of God. It never ends. Because he is inexhaustible. And there is a joy in that that we cannot fathom because sin is restrictive and orients ourselves to ourselves. And when that sin is removed, now our orientation is to give glory to God. That's what we're made for. Before we come to the next verses, I want you to notice that woven into the charge to endure the approach, the reproach of Jesus, um, is this idea of an altar, not, not the tent that requires repeated sacrifices of bulls and goats. That's the idea. We have an altar, he says, which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So here's what he's saying. He's saying uh, there's an altar that you're used to thinking about, a physical altar that's, a, that's a, to represent or point us to Jesus that you have been practicing for centuries where you go in and you take bulls and goats and doves and pigeons and you you Kill them and you shed their blood so that you can have sacrifice for sin. Over and over and over and over again. But we have a different altar from which those who serve the tent, that altar, have no right to eat, no right to be nourished spiritually. That's what he's getting at when he says that. I want us to see that. And I also want us to see that, that there's this language of sacrifice the language of sacrifice is woven in here, a sacrifice for sin. Keep that language in mind because we're, as we turn to these next verses, woven into the charge to endure reproach just as Jesus is, is this language of sacrifice. And if I could put it a little bit differently, I'd say it this way. Enduring reproach requires sacrifice. Enduring reproach requires sacrifice. Let's just take a look. Oh, there's the here. Whoops, I did not mean for them to be separate slides like that. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We are charged here to praise God. Now, here's something interesting to think about. Praising God in church rarely comes with a reproach. Would you say that that's true? Yeah? I mean, you get that, that weird little quote-unquote reproach where, like, maybe you're next to the person who's, who's very emotional, and they, they raise their hands, and you, maybe you're not comfortable with that, and I don't know if I want to do that because that feels weird. I'm not going to call that reproach. You can call it something, but it's not reproach. Praising God in church rarely comes with approach. But we are told here that this praise is sacrificial 
in nature. Praise is sacrificial in nature. And as Jesus tells us elsewhere, if we love him, then the world will hate us. The world will give reproach to us. They'll rebuke or disapprove us. They'll inflict reproach on us. They'll cause blame and discredit and disgrace us. They'll subject us to censure, condemnation, and to scorn. And look at the sacrificial things that God calls us to. Thinking about running the race with endurance. More things to do. Not just loving well, but being sacrificial in nature. Praising him sacrificially. Doing good sacrificially. Sharing what you have. Why? Because the scripture tells us that those sacrifices, that's the language that he uses, are pleasing to God. It is a spiritual act of worship to offer sacrifices, living sacrifices, we sometimes say, of praise, of doing good unto others, of sharing what you have that God has given you because those sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Now, what we did was we began with the charge to remember our leaders, and what we're doing now is kind of bookending that with a comparative charge to obey and to submit to them. Why? Because they, we, are tasked with watching over your souls. And if you value your souls, and I'm sure you do, show of hands for those who don't value their souls, of course you value your soul. If you value your soul, know this, God, who is the giver of your soul, values your soul infinitely more than you do. Way, way more, exceedingly more than you and I could do for do. And so as your leaders, myself, Derek, the rest of the mission board, eventually a session as well as members of the presbytery, they're all held accountable to God to care for your souls. And so here's what that means. It means obey and submit to us no matter what, right? Oh, there, everybody woke up for that. <laughs> of course not. No. Members of any EPC church are recognized as having the right to question their leaders. Not exactly on a whim or in a fit of emotion per se, but on issues of doctrine, on issues of morality. And of course, as you well know, I hope you know, you can ask anything of me and I'll do my best to answer it for you. You can criticize me if it helps you to better care for your souls. In fact, I would say that you have a responsibility to hold me accountable and that you should be rather highly motivated to keep, since as we read here, I uh, will be held accountable for your souls, and, it, and to do otherwise would not be beneficial or advantageous to you, as the text says. So in short, here's what it boils down to. we got to help each other out. That's my short translation. And as you can see here, that requires both the sacrifices of praise to God as well as the continual devotion to his unchanging truths and prayers for one another, as we read here. I need your prayers, you need my prayers, we need each other's prayers, we need to be praying for one another. Praying for those who are here and praying for those who are not yet here who the Lord wants to lead 
to be here. And now we come to these verses, the author's final words. And what we begin to see is this is kind of a sermon that became a letter. Because here's the benediction. Here's the closing of the sermon. Listen to it. It sounds like a benediction. In fact, it sounds like the Aaronic blessing of number six. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a benediction. It's not just a benediction, though. It's a rather beautiful benediction that beautifully sums up the fundamental emphasis of the whole book, namely that Jesus is greater, greater than the angels and greater than Moses and greater than the priests and greater than their sacrifices, which is why his is the eternal blood of the covenant, or the blood of the eternal covenant, I should say. And it is he who equips us. We're to look to him, the unchanging God revealed to us in the unchanging Christ. And that would be the end of the sermon, and here is the end of the letter. So the writer uh, takes this sermon, puts it in a letter, and gives us these final words. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see if he comes see you with if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send your greetings. You see sort of boots on the ground, mission work that the writer is writing about. But if the last words were the benediction, then what's going on here is, as I said, this is likely first the sermon, later formed into a letter. As such, the benediction would be the end of the sermon, and these words would be the end of the letter. And words that make a reference to the sermon as a word of exhortation and a brief word at that. I've heard many sermons on the book of Hebrews. And preachers love to point out that when you get done with the book of Hebrews, the writer says it's a brief exhortation. And it should charge us to do what? It should charge us to build up some endurance to run the race well. Endurance when it comes to the study of God's Word. Because a 13-chapter book that historically has been seen as rather theologically complex is viewed by the author as merely a brief exhortation. You need to build up some spiritual muscle here. Remember, we want to run with endurance and with discipline and with vision, and that takes training training that will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness in us that the writer tells us about. And as we officially begin our journey as a church plan, as the Church of the Gungs, a community church of the EPC, we need to know that our journey will be exciting, but it won't be long before we two are running up against the wind. And it will be then that I want you to remind each other of the charge in these verses to endure reproach for the kingdom. Because being the church is not safe and it's not comfortable. It's difficult and even at times dangerous. But it is also good. Good because he's good. He is our king. And serving him here will be difficult. But we must always keep our eyes fixed on the lasting city, the city that is to come. Never forgetting that the absence of comfort or safety by no means equates with the absence of joy. 
As the writer says earlier, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And that's where we come to now. We come to the table. We come to communion, which is a demonstration of a redefining of joy in terms of the language of Scripture, in terms of a vision that looks beyond the immediate, beyond the temporal, to the eternal, that sets our eyes on Jesus in his resurrected state, risen from the dead for what he has done for us. As the elements are being passed around, I want to encourage you to take these moments to reflect on that. What you hold in your hand or what you will hold in your hand, this little cup represents a foretaste of heaven. It represents the image of what God has done in his son to restore you to communion with him. It represents the damage of sin and the high cost of forgiveness. It is redemption. And it cost him everything, but he gives it freely to you. And we want to respond with joy. Joy because the things that we have in that redemption can never be taken away. The world can't do it. The joy that you have that comes from God in his son is never something that can be taken from you. And the world can take a lot. The world can make it difficult, but they can't touch that. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.